hearts and bow our heads for just a moment of silent prayer. Amen. If it's all right, they have left out the children's story because of time. But if you don't mind, I'd like to tell one anyway. But you can just stay right where you're at. I'll do it quick. All right? This happened many years ago when I was a young pastor in a little town called Valentine, Nebraska. And I had, I'd preach at Valentine in the morning. And then the afternoon, I'd, after lunch, I'd drive 50 miles over a town called Springview and preach there from 2.30 to 3.30. Then I'd get in my car and drive down to Bassett and have church there from, from uh, 4 to 5. And by the time I had finished, I know preaching doesn't look hard, but I had a teacher in college ask us one time, when you get done preaching, do you feel tired? And most of us said, no, why? He says, well, you can be sure of one thing. When you get done preaching, someone's going to be tired. We hope it's the preacher, not the congregation. So I must have preached a good sermon that day because after the third sermon, I was really tired. And all I could think of is the 60 miles home and getting home and planting myself in the recliner. There was an old gentleman who came to the church occasionally. Most of the time he was out visiting relatives or something. He wasn't there that day, and his name was David Round. And, uh, but he often wasn't there, and my little boy was with me. My wife, I, I had two boys at the time, and my oldest one was, oh, just a little bit past two, two and a half. Anyways, we started out of town. He started a whimper. And he said, round, round, see David round. I knew he was talking about David Ring. And I thought, I didn't even know he knew, but my son knew his name. And I didn't always take him down there because I don't want to make my kids get tired of church by having to go three times every Sabbath. Anyway, they were long. And as we drove out of town, I said, you want to see round? I want to see David round. And I said, well, he's probably out of town visiting his relatives. Uh, I'll be back in town Tuesday for prayer meeting. I'll stop and see him then. And he would not take no for an answer. And had he been that ornery, unquote, and over any other thing, we would have spanked him. But we drove for 10 miles, and he was just, I couldn't say throwing a fit, but he was just convulsed with sobs and tears. I want to see David round. And, and I felt like giving him a spanking. But I thought, I can't spank this little boy. All he wants daddy to do is go visit an old church member. So finally, I thought, well, the only way I'm going to have any peace is I've got to go back to where this man lives and show him the man's not home. So we went back into town and drove down the alley behind Main Street because he lived in a little apartment behind the hardware store. And I parked right by the door, and I went up, and I knocked real loud on the door, and nobody came. Well, as soon as I turned the car around, he'd calm down. And when I knocked on the door and nobody came, I went back. I said, see, Mark, nobody's home. And, as I, and I started to get in the car. And he came unglued again. I want to see David round. And I said with an irritation in my voice, he's not home today. But I want to see David round. So I went back and I knocked really hard on the door. Bang, long and loud. Nobody came to the door. And as soon as I'd gotten out, he calmed down. But when I turned back the car, he started to cry again. I want to see David round. I thought, in order to have peace, I'm going to have to show this boy that the house is locked and nobody's home. So I turned around, I went back, and I put my hand on the doorknob, and I pulled it, and it wasn't locked. And I pushed the door open, and there was David Round laying on the floor, having a heart attack. And I thought, Preacher Daddy was so interested in having his nap that the Holy Spirit had to speak to my little boy. Children, I want you to know something. You don't have to wait until you're grown up to hear the voice of God. Because Samuel was just a little boy, and God called to him and had a message for him. So keep your hearts in tune with God, parents. And children, you can keep your hearts in tune with God because sometimes God can speak to you when he can't speak to the old people. Amen? How many are ashamed of me? How many are glad I didn't give him a spanking? Oh. Anyway, I hope you noticed the Bible verse that was read just a little bit ago. Uh, the first verse that was read was John fourteen fifteen. I mentioned this to the class I was in today. But John 14, 15, as you read in the King James, it says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And it sounds like keeping my commandments is an order. It's like a spoiled wife saying to her husband, if you love me, buy me a fur coat. <laughs> I don't remember a lot of the Greek that I took 47 years ago when I was in college. 
But I do remember when we were reading this particular text in the original language of Greek. And the word keep in the Greek is tereo. But when you want to change the meaning from an order, keep, to something that happens naturally, it's tereso. And if you look in some of the modern translations, they understood and caught this little thing because what it says in the original, translated, it says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's not something that you have to do, but it's something God knows comes out of a heart of love. Now, if you look in the bulletin, the title of the sermon is Salvation, Cause and Effect. And you all know that uh, I'll often say to you, have a good eternity. Is is there anybody here that I haven't said that to personally, face-to-face? Maybe we haven't talked much. But I will say that to you. Uh, If you say, have a good day, I'll say, thank you very much. I want you to have a good eternity. And I don't want to make anybody feel bad, but I often have people say to me, well, I'm doing the best I can. And at the time, we don't have time to talk, but when you say that to me, I'm doing the best I can, it gives me an itch where I can't scratch it. Not because I'm mad at you, but because one of the biggest misunderstandings that is prevalent among Christians of any denomination is that somehow, some way, if I'm going to be saved, I have to con- contribute my part to the salvation. But we need to understand what our part is. Because you see, the cause of salvation, I need to open my notes here, the cause of our salvation has nothing to do with what we have done. I want to read you something if I can get my notes open to it. Here it is. Now I've got to put my glasses on. I hope Jesus comes before the rest of you get old, because this is rough. But this is what it says. Every soul, how many souls? Every soul may say, by his perfect obedience, he has satisfied the claims of the law. And my only hope is found in looking to him as my substitute and surety, who obeyed the law perfectly for me. By faith in his merits, I am free from the condemnation of the law. He clothes me with his righteousness, which answers all the demands of the law. I am complete in him who brings in everlasting righteousness. He presents me, it's talking to Jesus. Jesus permits me, presents me to the Father in the spotless garment of which no thread was woven by any human agent. All is of Christ. And all the glory and all the honor and all the majesty are to be given to the Lamb of God, which has taken away the sins of the world. And I like that I put it in bold. It says, the robe of righteousness which Christ gives to us, which makes us title to heaven. There's not one thread of human doing in that. And you see what I want people to understand is the cause of salvation is totally God's mercy. There's no other cause for salvation. There is not anything that you and I do that causes salvation. It's us to come to God. In fact, I want you to look at some text. Um, Well, I'm looking for the one here. Let's go to Hebrews 10.22. I've talked about that before. I want to talk about it again. Hebrews 10.22. Please go there. Now this is talking about coming to God. And it says in Hebrews 10.22, Let us draw near with what? Have you found it yet? With a true heart. Now I've got a question for you. What is a true heart? I think of what Jesus says in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You look on a newer translation and it will say, Blessed are they who recognize their spiritual poverty. A false heart looks inside and says, Well, I'm not all that bad. How many recognize that's a false heart? And one of the things I've noticed in my life that Satan does is that people who really want to do what God wants them to do, he tells them they're too bad. How many have ever been told that? You are too bad. You might as well just give up. You'll never make it. Satan says that to people who really want to do what's right. And to other people that aren't really interested in doing right, he says, oh, you're not so bad. You'll probably make it. How many know Satan does that? 
And I have said this to people. Whenever you see someone doing something wrong, the natural tendency, and they're feeling bad. You don't want them to feel bad. You say, oh, don't feel so bad. I know other people do. Don't say that. The sin of just partaking of the forbidden fruit was enough to cause all the sin in the world. Amen? And so whenever I hear somebody saying to somebody else, oh, don't feel bad. I've done worse than that. Don't try to make people feel better by telling them what they have done is not so bad because that's what Satan does to keep people from recognizing they need to come to Jesus because the thing that brings us to Jesus is I recognize I am bad and I recognize that without outside help, I'm going to be lost. And a true heart recognizes I need Jesus. Without Jesus, I am absolutely lost. Amen? I feel a little uncomfortable. I'm afraid I've told this story before, but I don't remember when I did, so I'm going to tell it because I want you to understand just how completely lost without Jesus we are. I went to academy with a young lady who went to college, became a teacher, and she was teaching a little one-room country school in an area of Nebraska called the Sand Hills. Anybody ever heard of the Sand Hills in Nebraska? We lived there. I pastored that church in Valentine I told you about. Uh, in Valentine, when you head south out of town, you better have plenty of gas and a spare tire because it's 60 miles south before you even see another house. There's not even any telephones for 60 miles. And Cherry County, that's where it is, is the biggest county in the United States with the least population. All right? I don't know how big it is, but it's a big place. And I've been lost out in the sand hills. And she taught a little one-room school. These little kids from around the, the ranches came to school. And she had a phone call one day. You better send the kids home early. There, a blizzard is coming. So they got on their horses or whatever, and their parents came. And she stayed at school a little bit longer. And by the time she left, the blizzard had hit. She had a little Volkswagen. And she, the, she drove out. She had an apartment in town about 40 miles away. And she drive out. She was driving back. The blizzard hit. Uh, it got worse and worse. She couldn't see. Finally, her car got, little Volkswagen got stuck. How many know what the old-fashioned air-breathing Volkswagen's heaters were like? Not very good. But she uh, stayed there and, and uh, kept the window down enough to get fresh air in because she didn't want to be asphyxiated. Uh, but about 1 o'clock in the morning, her car ran out of gas, and she was sitting in there freezing. And she had been told by the ranchers, if you're ever lost in the sand hills, probably the best thing to do is find a bobbed wire fence and follow it sooner or later if you're going to, it, it'll, it'll bring you to something. So she got out, found the bob wire fence, started following it. And what she didn't realize is that this particular bob wire fence that she was following went across the Loop River. I've seen the, some fences like that. And she was hanging the bob wire fence, couldn't see where she was. And she got out in the middle of the river where the current was and the ice was thin. And here it was, 1.30 in the morning. And it was about zero, and the wind was 40 miles an hour, and she went through the ice, and she was hanging on the barbed wire fence with the barbs sticking through her mittens into her hand, and she, just her neck and her head was sticking out of the water, and the ice water was, was had her trying to push her back under the ice. And she just cried out, God, help me. Now, how many recognize, unless she had outside help, she was lost? Amen? And uh, right about that time there was a rancher and his son had got up in the middle of the night and thought, we've got some cows down by the river. We need to check on them. So they went out to the machine shed and they got their tractor out that had an enclosed cab and they drove five miles from their house because the ranches in the sand hills are big. I have been out with some church members riding horses and we rode five miles a straight line. We were still on their ranch and they drove down by the river and they turned off the... Uh, diesel tractor and opened the door to see if they could hear any moo and just the moment they opened the door they heard somebody help me they had a rope with them and the teenage boy tied the rope around himself tied it to the tractor went out fell through the ice but got a hold of this young school teacher and let his dad know and they pulled him out and of course they were both cold and she inhaled a lot of water and she was coughing and crying and they got her in the cab and shut the door and the three of them drove back to the house and they filled the bathtub with hot water. Question, how many years will go by before that young lady forgets what those people did for her that night? And you see, a true heart is a heart that allows the Holy Spirit to bring conviction. You're lost. You're a sinner. 
and all the excuses that Satan gives us, you're not so bad and look at what you've done, is all that Satan wants to do is keep you from coming to Jesus, thinking, I'm not that bad, I don't need to. And my wife mentioned that we hope you can come to the funeral Monday morning at 10.30, the visitation at 10 o'clock. But one of the things about many funerals that bother me is they get up and they talk about how good the person who died was. And people go away with the idea, that's how you get to heaven. And, of course, most of the people knew that people were there and thought, well, if they're going to make it, I'll probably make it because I'm as good as they were. Let us draw near with what kind of heart? A true heart. How do you get a true heart? You listen to the Holy Spirit bring you conviction. You need Jesus. Without Jesus, you're a sinner. Amen? That's what a true heart is. And then the text says, let us draw near with a true heart. In what kind of faith? Now, forgive me. I've talked about this before, but I want to talk about full assurance of faith. I believe that Jesus is going to come soon. How many believe that? I have faith in that, I believe it. But I want you to know something. That's not full assurance of faith. I believe according to the Bible that when Jesus comes, there's going to be a whole bunch of people that have died trusting Jesus. He's going to resurrect them and take them to heaven. I believe that. How many of you believe that? Jesus is going to resurrect a whole bunch of people going to take them to heaven. I also believe that when he comes, there's going to be a whole bunch of people living here alive who have trusted in Jesus, and he's going to take them to heaven too. How many believe that? That's still not full assurance of faith. It's hard for me to say what I'm going to say without, without tearing up. Because I know I'm not worthy, but I believe that Jesus is going to take a whole bunch of people to heaven with him. I don't deserve it, but he's told me I'm going to be one of those people. And we were reading in our lesson this morning about heaven and the flowers and everything. Full assurance of faith says he not only is going to save this one, this one, but he's given me the invitation, I've accepted it, and I'm going to be one of those people who go there. How many recognize that unless you have that kind of faith, you don't have full assurance of faith? Amen? And I've discovered whenever I think that, he's going to take a bunch of people to heaven, and he told me what he told the thief, you're going to be one of the people who go. I cannot think that thought without wanting to obey him. Amen? And you see, that is what the effect is. And here's the text that, as long as I'm here, you're going to hear it. 1 John 3, 3, every man that has his hope in him, what? You see, God is the cause of the hope. But the effect of the hope, the effect of true faith is, I not only want to overcome this sin and that sin, I want to, I want to become pure. I want you to look at another text. This is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. Take a little bit of explaining this text. It says, but we all, with an open face. Well, the only time I use the term open face is when I'm making a sandwich with only one piece of bread. But when you read the context of this text, it will tell you that when Moses came down from the mountain, his He'd been in the presence of God and his face was shining and the people were afraid of him. And they says, Moses, put a veil over his face. You can read this in this chapter and you can go back in, in the book of uh, Exodus and read about it. And so he put a veil over his face because they were afraid of the glory of God that was shining out of his face. And what, what it's saying here in 2 Corinthians, it's possible that when we're looking at the Bible, we have the veil over our face so that we see the words, but we don't see the glory of God. Are you with me? And what it's saying in all of 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is let's get rid of the veil so that we can see the glory of God, right? Take, that's, what it, that's what an open face is. You take the veil off so that when you read the Bible and when you look at nature, you can see God in, in the Bible. You see him, right? And notice what it says here. But we all with an open face, getting rid of unbelief, having full assurance, we all with an open face, as in a glass, and back then the mirrors they had weren't like our mirrors. And in one of the newer translations, it says, we look at God and we don't understand everything about him. How many agree with that? One translation says, we look and we see puzzling reflections. We know there's something there we're not sure. Whatever, even if you don't understand it, what does it say here? But we all with an open face beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are what? And so you see the cause here 
is looking at Jesus. Amen? That's the cause. What's the effect of looking at Jesus? We're changed. And if you keep looking at Jesus long enough, you're going to become like him. Just like 1 John 3, 3 says, every man that has his hope in him does what? Have we I've ever taught you to sing that one? We need to do it. Sing. Every man that has his hope in him purifies himself. Every man that has his hope in him purifies himself. Even as Christ himself is pure. Even as Christ himself is pure. Now, I see a few mouths going. Let's try it again. Every man that has this hope in him purifies himself. Every man that has this hope in him purifies himself. Even as Christ himself is pure. Even as Christ himself is pure. Now, obedience and what God has done and salvation are so closely entwined that we, as I've said before, have a tendency to confuse between the cause and the effect. But if you are going to live a successful Christian life, you need to understand 100% what the cause of your salvation is. And it is nothing that you have done or ever will do is the cause of your salvation. But the effect of salvation, when you let it in, and when you rejoice in it and thank God for it, will cause you not to say, how good do I have to be? It'll cause you to say... I want to be as good as... I, I, want to, I want to do everything Jesus wants me to do. Now, I've got a few more things to read to you. Uh, here's a sermon I've been wanting to preach in heaven. You'll get it one of these days. Second Peter 1.4 says, Whereby... I'm going to wait till you get there. The word whereby, which is the first word in the King James in chapter 1, verse 4, 2 Peter, whereby is referring to what Jesus has done. And you can read that in verses 1, 2, 3. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. Whereby... That's the cause. This is what Jesus has done. Are given to us exceeding great and precious promises. What's the cause of the promise? Am I worthy of the promises? It's what Jesus has done. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. The cause? Jesus' promise is what he's done. The cause? It causes me to partake of the divine nature. And in just a few minutes, after we have the foot washing service, we're going to come up here. We're going to read some words from the Bible that says that Jesus says, this is my blood, this is my body. How many have ever heard those words before? And symbolically, as we eat the unleavened bread and the grape juice, we are going to be partaking of Jesus. He wants us to partake of him, doesn't he? But you see, it's possible to go through the service that we're going to do that was given as a symbol to remind us what we need to do. It's possible to do that service and not partake of Jesus. In order to partake of Jesus, you have to really believe He is here and He is coming into my body and I don't want to have a dirty body for Him to come into. Amen? He will make me clean. And the way you become a partaker of the divine nature is He's given us by what He's done exceeding great and precious promises and by these we become partakers of the divine nature. That's the cause. His promises, the divine nature coming in is the cause. What's the effect? The last part of verse 4, what's the effect? We escape the corruption that's in the world through lust. What I want to do with this sermon is forever help you understand the difference between the cause of your salvation and the effect of your salvation. And when you think that you affect your salvation by what you do, that'll cause you not to appreciate what Jesus has done so much. But when you recognize you're just as lost as that young lady was there hanging on the barbed wire fence, and the only way, the only way that you can ever be saved is call out to Jesus like the thief did. And you live the rest of your life in gratitude unless... You allow Satan to steal it away from you. Back in 2 Corinthians 18, beholding. One of the things I've preached to you about that I know Satan works on you with because he works on me with it. He wants us to behold anything than God. How many know that? He, you know, people have asked me, can Satan read your mind? I says, it doesn't matter whether he can read your mind or not. He knows whether or not you're thinking what he wants you to think about. And if you're not thinking what he wants you to think about, he's concerned. Am I right? 
Because you see, Satan doesn't care what you think about as long as you're not thinking about Jesus. And you all know that we are going through a time of political, what's the word you want to stress? That's a good word, isn't it? Stress right now. And uh, it depends on which leaning you are. Uh, you can be under stress. And you, when you hear somebody talk about the faults of the party that you're against, you're all ears. How many know I'm telling you the truth? Yeah, yeah, he's that. I have discovered whenever I'm thinking about anybody's faults, whether it's a presidential candidate or somebody else in the church or what the church board has done or what the nominating committee has done or something my wife has said or something the kids have done, or whatever, it doesn't make any difference. All Satan wants to do is get my attention off of Jesus. And this last week, for the first time in my life, isn't that terrible? These thoughts come in my mind and I say, I can't think about that because if I think about that, I won't be thinking about Jesus. And I've discovered if I think about Jesus, everything else begins to fall into place. And one of the things some of you said to me, God bless you, and I say back to you, thank you. But if God doesn't bless me, it won't be his fault. How many know that that's true? And you see what Satan wants to do is get our attention off of God so that when God wants to get us a blessing, we're not paying attention. The blessing slips right by and we don't even know it. Amen? So what Jesus wants me to do is whenever anything comes into my mind that gets my attention off of Jesus, I take my brain by the seat of its pants and I says, we're not thinking about that. We're going to think about Jesus instead. Isaiah 26, verse 3. How many know Isaiah 26, 3 yet? Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. And when you're not experiencing perfect peace, it's because you have allowed Satan to divert your attention away from Jesus onto anything. And how many knows he doesn't care what you think about as long as you're not thinking about God. Thou wilt keep him in... Wait, let's sing that one too. Same tune, different verse. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Because he trusteth in thee. Because he trusteth in thee. Isaiah 26, 3. Now, how many think you can sing that by yourself next Wednesday? Anybody think you can sing that by yourself? Let's do it again. I only see one head going up and down. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Because he trusteth in thee. Because he trusteth in thee. Isaiah 26, 3. Let me read you one more. It's so often we think we can't come to God until I'm worthy. This is from uh, Selected Messages. Do you have a sense of want in your soul? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Then this is evidence that Christ is working on your heart. He's created the sense of need in order that he may be sought after to do those things for you through the Holy Spirit, which it is impossible for you to do for yourself. The Lord specifies no conditions. How many of that make you nervous? I haven't finished the sentence yet, but anyway, here it goes. The Lord specifies no conditions except. And so many people think the condition is, I've got to be worthy. Listen, the Lord specifies no conditions except you hunger for his mercy, desire his counsel, and long for his love. Ask. The asking makes it manifest that you realize your necessity. And if you ask in faith, you will receive. The Lord has pledged his word and it cannot fail. That you feel and know that you are a sinner is sufficient argument in asking for his mercy and compassion. What is sufficient argument in asking for Jesus' love, forgiveness, and compassion? What's sufficient argument? I need it. I'm a sinner and I need it. Now let me read on. The condition upon which you may come to God is not that you are holy, but that you shall ask God to cleanse you from your sins and purify you from all iniquity. Then why wait longer? Why not take God's word and say, Here, Lord, I give myself to thee. It's all that I can do. Let's bow our heads. Dear Jesus in heaven, we can't make ourselves holy. 
All we can do is allow the Holy Spirit to bring conviction that we need you. And then cry out to you like the thief did. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the promise, Father, that you gave the thief is the promise that you give to every repenting soul. And the Bible says the joy of the Lord is what gives me strength. And every man that has his hope in him will become pure. Help us, Father, no more to get confused between the cause of our salvation and the effect of our salvation. This is my prayer for us all today in Jesus' name. Amen. In being clean from sin, God said to the disciples, If I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you would also wash each other's feet. Jesus' companionship with the disciples helped them to be better people. Amen? And it wasn't because he scolded them, though once in a while he did, but it was because he became their servant. Jesus became the servant of the disciples. And the Bible says he took out his outer garments, ran around, and like a slave, and went and kneeled down before them and took a towel, girded himself, and washed their feet. He helped to make them clean. And Jesus wants us to become servants to each other so that we can help each other become clean. Let's do that at this time. There are three places in our church where we're going to do that. If you are here with your spouse and you think you need to wash your spouse's feet and have your spouse wash your feet, the room about that side of the kitchen is for spouses. How many think that's a good thing to do, especially if you've been a little upset with each other? <laughs> and then in the schoolroom downstairs is, if you're not with a spouse and, and uh, ladies wash ladies' feet in the schoolroom, is that right? And the men out in the dining room. So let's separate at this time, and when you go on your knees to wash your partner's feet, pray for them and say, Lord, help me to do spiritually what I'm about to do physically. And you see the foot washing service is a symbol of the relationship should, that should exist between church members. Amen? Let's pray that that's the kind of relationship we'll have with each other. Let's separate at this time. two together. All right. When you're with Paul, all right, I will wait here until...
Let's bow our heads for just a moment of prayer. Dear Jesus in heaven, we feel gratitude, unexpressible gratitude, when we think what we are, and then we think what you are, and who you are, and what you have done. Father, I pray that you will bless each heart today, that as we receive these symbols of the blood of Jesus and the broken body of Jesus, that the Spirit Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, will come into us and abide with us forever. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. As you look at the words in 1 Corinthians 11 that we read when we have the communion service, there are a few words there that every time I would read them, they would really bother me. In fact, there were times I thought, I'm not going to go to communion today because after it says, you eat this body, eat his body, drink this cup, then a little farther on it says, he that eateth and drinketh unworthily is guilty of the body and the blood of Jesus. And I thought, boy, I don't want to do that. And to be honest with you, I can't remember a day in my life when I could look in, my, look in the mirror and say, I think I'm worthy today. But I want you to know something about that verse. There's, it says it twice. The word unworthily, which is the other thing I remember from my reading of Greek, the word unworthily there in 1 Corinthians 11 is not talking about the condition of the eater and the drinker. It's talking about the manner in which they were doing the eating and the drinking. The word unworthily in the original is not an, ad, not an adjective that describes the person. It's an adverb that describes the way they were eating it. And when you read the context of 1 Corinthians 11, you'll discover that the church members in Corinth had recently come out of paganism. And in paganism, when they would have their religious services, they would have what they called the pagan orgy. And it's so foreign to us that we can't imagine, as we read 1 Corinthians 11, what was going on. But the idea that it gets is that they would come forward to get it, and those who got there first would eat too much, and the people came last. There was nothing left. You read that in 1 Corinthians 11. So they were missing the blessing of the service. And then I asked myself, well, what is it that makes a person worthy? And you read in Luke 18 about the two people who came to church. And one person came to church, and he thought, I'm worthy. And he looked at all the things that he had done and says, I think I'm worthy. And the publican, he, he didn't feel he was worthy. And he, all he could think was, oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the Bible says, the words of Jesus' mouth says, that man went home justified. So if you have come here today looking at your life, think, oh, I'm, I'm pretty good. You maybe shouldn't partake of this. But if you come to church today recognizing that you're a sinner and how desperately you need Jesus, Jesus died for sinners. So let me read the words, and you can follow with me if you want to open your Bibles. And I won't read all these texts that I mentioned, but I will read the ones that are quoting the words of Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I'm starting in verse 24. And when he had given thanks, starting in verse 23, For I have received the Lord, that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do ye in remembrance of me. The elders and the deacons will kneel. Congregation can remain seated as we give thanks for the broken body of Jesus. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the symbol that you have given us of the broken body that you suffered through to justify each one of us being ready to serve you and then one day when you come, go to heaven with you. Father, we thank you for the penalty of sin that you have paid for each and every one of us here today. And as we partake of this symbol, Lord, may we remember what you have done for us. For we ask it in your name. Amen. Amen. 
I know some of you know this song. (laughs) Isaiah 53. I always like to sing this when I do communion. You can sing it with me, I know. All we like sheep. Let's start over. You can do better. All we like sheep. Have gone astray. All we like sheep. Have gone astray. For the Lord has laid. My sins on him. And the Lord has laid on him. The iniquities of us all. We have turned every one to his own way. We have turned every one to his own way. For the Lord has laid my sins on him. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. He is despised and rejected of men. He is despised and rejected of men. For the Lord has laid my sins on him. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. A man of sorrows. And acquainted with grief, a man of sorrows. And acquainted with grief, for the Lord has laid my sins on him. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. I want you to look at the piece of unleavened bread that you hold in your hand. And the reason it's unleavened, because in the Bible, though leavening wasn't wrong, it was used by God as a symbol of sin. There's no sin in Jesus. And he wants you to receive his sinlessness into yourself. Look at the piece of bread and realize, Jesus, if you were the only person who ever sinned, and you're the only one who needed his death, Jesus would have died for you anyway. Jesus says, this is my body, broken for you. Eat ye all of it. Reading on in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 25 says, After the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, as often as you drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he comes. Again, the elders and deacons will kneel as we return thanks to God for the shed blood of his son. Lord Jesus, we read that while you were here, you lived that perfect and sinless life. You showed us your love. You showed us your humility. And you said, no greater love that a man can have than to lay down his life for his friends. And Lord, we thank you for the symbol of your shed blood for for all of us that you love. We thank you again for just demonstrating that great love. 
we ask that you'd help us to never forget as we open your word at any time that love in the symbol of the, the wine and the juice. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to continue singing out of Isaiah 53. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. For the Lord has laid my sins on him and the Lord has laid on him. The iniquities of us, God, smitten of God, and afflicted, smitten of God, and afflicted, for the Lord has laid my sins on him, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. He was wounded. For our transgressions, he was wounded. For our transgressions, for the Lord has laid my sins on him. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. And with his stripes, we are healed. And with his stripes we are healed, for the Lord has laid my sins on him, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. He made his soul an offering for sin, he made his soul. An offering for sin, for the Lord has laid my sins on him, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. Again, I want you to look at the cup and the red liquid that represents the blood of Jesus Christ and realize if nobody else had ever sinned, there was only one sinner in the whole history of the universe, only one. And if that one was me, Jesus still would have come down and shed his blood to save me. He cannot love you more than if he didn't have anybody else to love. That's the nature of God's love. Jesus says, this is my blood. It was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink ye all of it. As I've sung this song with the rest, what thou, my Lord, hast suffered was all for sinners gain. Mine, mine was thy transgression, but thine the deadly pain. Help us to carry these thoughts and related thoughts of Jesus constantly. Like it says in Thessalonians, let us pray without ceasing. Let us in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Amen.